0: grace on fire episode 98 you're listening to grace on fire home of grace nation it's not just another podcast it's the voice of a movement join now at mygracenation.com mygracenation.com what's up what's up what's up here we go Beverage here, grab something. Feels good to be gone here. All right, Grace on fire. Go. Hello, Grace Nation, and welcome to the show. My name is the Reverend Dr. Smitty, a.k.a. the Reverend Dr. Jonathan G. Smith, and I'm your online pastor. My goal is to raise ambassadors of grace by cultivating compassion, justice, and love in your home, in your neighborhood, and in the city. And one of the ways that I do that is by tackling some of the most difficult issues that our society faces in terms of the relationship and the intersection of our culture and Christianity. And if all those things interest you, then welcome. You have found the right place on the World Wide Web. <laughs> Does anyone actually call it the World Wide Web anymore? I think I was talking with somebody that was in their 70s and they said, you know, we get getting on the World Wide Web. And I was like, uh, I'm not really sure that even anybody uses World Wide Web anymore. But that just shows you my age. For those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, those are the little W's that you put before a URL. Anyhow, oh man, I'm super excited to be here on the show with you. And uh, today we're going to be talking about my formula, a gospel-centered formula for loving LGBTQ people and families. And that is truth plus, blah, blah. let me start over with that one. That is truth plus grace equals love. We use a, we, we run a really, uh, you know, loose ship around here on the show. I don't have a lot of time to edit that, so we're just going to go with it. Anyways, truth plus grace equals love. And that's not my own. I'm sure you can find that formula in um, many different ways, stated many different uh, places. Uh, but I think it works here in this. And one of the reasons why that I think is so critical for us to understand this little formula is because we so we get it wrong. You know, I mean, it's really not that hard. But honestly, I, I really do think that when uh, straight people begin to talk with, with gay people, um, it's, you know, we get it wrong about 90% of the time. And uh, so, you know, let me just say, it's all of <laughs> we have to have grace when we apply this. And um anyway, so that's what we're gonna be talking about. Also on the show here, we're gonna get towards the end. If you're interested in listening for that, I'm gonna give you six practical steps to apply to any conversation with an LGBTQ plus person. And uh it's not rocket science, it's not hard, but um when if you're a straight person you say, I don't I don't know what to say. Uh, you got a little Forrest Gump on yourself. Um, hey, don't worry about that. Uh, our culture has created these weirdo, um, these weirdo scenarios where we feel uncomfortable with human beings, and you know we do that in a lot of different ways. So it's not, it's not just straight versus gay people. I mean, it, it's. It's all sorts of, of things that we we get into, right? Have you ever looked at you know uh, white guys trying to talk with black guys, and you know there's some of the weirdo things that go on? That weirdo that seems to be my weirdo word of the day. Um, anyhow, right? There's there's just interesting dynamics in human relationships that are created because of social cultural baggage that we bring into them. <laughs> Witness a date, right? An awkward date. Have you ever been on an awkward date? And um, it's been a long time since I've been dating, by the way. I will be celebrating, just a little uh, rabbit trail, I will be celebrating 19 years of marriage to my beautiful wife this year. We're almost to the 20-year mark. It's unbelievable. We've known each other over 20 years now, but... Just to get to that 19 years, I mean, wow, it's it's been a while. So it's been a while since I've been dating. um, But, you know, you know what I'm talking about, right? Just the awkwardness that comes in human relationships. So um, to cut through all of that, we're going to do six practical steps, I think, that can help you. And it's just these are just things that just sort of off the top of my head. This isn't formulaic, right? These are suggestions, things to keep in mind. Uh, Also. I do want to give a little shout out to, uh, to a man. I don't have his permission to actually share his uh, his uh, name. So I'm not going to share his name. But he did write to me and uh, just recently. And wow, I just was so moved by his letter that he wrote. And I felt like, you know, this is it took some courage. And uh, I know who it is. And so let me just give you, um, it's from a parent. And let me just give you a little uh, snippet of what he says. He says, he writes... For our part, we believe our son was created gay because God has a purpose for him and a purpose in giving him as an amazing gift to us. Our son has experienced several messages from God and also from others at his conservative college and church in another state that he is loved and belongs. As you know, this is an incredibly complex minefield in the church But we believe that one, our son was created gay and that his orientation is not sinful. And two, that loving and respecting him and other LGBTQ people means respecting the choices they make as they work out their faith and fear and trembling with us. Even if that make decisions, we may have difficulty accepting. You know, I just want to say thank you so much, my brother, for sharing this. And, you know, it was so encouraging uh, he ended the letter with a, just a nice encouraging note to me. And I want to say thank you so much for that encouragement and to commend you that in, in your journey, loving your son. I love this because it was it was just thrilling to hear a father, you know, refer to his gay son as an amazing gift to us. And so often parents, when we look at our children at burdens and I have three kids and they are a burden, but oh, my gosh, we love our kids regardless of what happens uh, in their lives. And so anyways, thank you again, my friend, for sharing your journey. And now as we continue the journey together, let's get into part one as we unpack this formula. Truth plus grace equals love. Oh, I was just uh, taking a sip of my, uh, a little bit of my Diet Coke here uh, this afternoon as I'm recording this. Anyway, so we're going to get into a very important concept. Now, in order to just lay the foundation for this particular show, there is something that has, let there, there, I me, mean, there's something. There is a a man out there um, by the name of Paul. I'm going to say his name is Paul uh, Hebert, but Hebert. Um, anyways, he wrote a book called Conversion, Culture, and Cognitive Categories. And his work has been around for a long time. Actually, he has a book out uh, that uh, ref- that unpacks this even more, called "Anthropological Reflections on Missiological Issues." And um, <laughs> I know that many of you probably will say, Huh, hey, let me go out and write that book down." Um, no, no, no. It's it's a it's an excellent book. And um, but the article that I want to make reference to uh, is this article where he's calling it. Um, um conversion culture and cognitive categories. And so let me just set this up. I'm not gonna read to you the whole article, but it's actually six uh articles long. It was actually in a printed in an academic journal. But he's created a scenario um, about an illiterate peasant who becomes a Christian after hearing the gospel only once. And and what he wants to unpack is what does conversion, in other words. What what actually happens when a person moves from being a non-Christian to a Christian? And how do people respond? And w- what should we look for? And, and all those sort of things that we get into. And uh, like I said, in this article, he's going to essentially put forth his uh, theory and that comes from math of a uh, center set versus a bounded set. And as a reminder, I've talked about center set before. Uh, on the show, but center set is this idea where you have um, something in the middle that defines the relationship. In other words, it's it's you know in in our faith in Christianity, we talk about it essentially as a belief and faith in Jesus Christ and in his uh, his gospel and and everything that implies. Now, uh, off a bounded set is all of the things that we sometimes associate and attribute to Christianity and that is a bounded set. In other words, it's a it's a barrier that beca- that says you're in or you're out. A great example of this actually comes from denominations. When someone says I am a Methodist versus I am an Anglican. Okay? That's the barrier. I am not a Methodist, I am an Anglican. It's interesting how these terms and, and how we identify labels and we put labels on ourselves that actually become bounded sets. I do think that LGBTQ can be a bounded set, right? There's no straight people in the LGBTQ alphabet. There's ally, but there's no S. So that's a bounded set. You're in or you're out. You're either in one of this or you're out. And, and it's not helpful, right? And to some degree, because we're all human beings, but we're different. And so, Bounded sets develop in order to make, well, let's just say it this way. Bounded sets develop in order to deal with differences. Apples versus oranges, etc. Now, getting back to papaya, uh, excuse me, to Paul Hybert, He creates this um, character named papaya. And let me just read to you just a few paragraphs from this because I think it will make sense on what he's arguing he asks the question can an illiterate peasant become a Christian after hearing the gospel only once and if so what do we mean by conversion imagine for a moment papaya an Indian peasant returning to his village after a hard day's work in the fields his wife is still preparing the evening meal so to pass the time he wanders over to the village square there he notices a stranger surrounded by a few curiosity seekers Tired and hungry, he sits down to hear what the man is saying. For an hour, he listens to a message of a new God, and something which he hears moves him deeply. Later, he asks a stranger about the new way, and then, almost as if by impulse, he bows his head and prays to this God who is said to have appeared to humans in the form of Jesus. He doesn't quite understand it all. As a Hindu, he worships Vishnu who incarnated incarnated himself as a human or animal in order to rescue humankind at different times in history. He also knows many of the other 33 million gods uh, village proverbs say exists. But the stranger said there is only one God, and this God has appeared among humans only once. Moreover, this Jesus is said to be the son of God, but the Christian did not say anything about God's wife. It is all confusing to him. The man turns to go home, And a new set of questions floods his mind. Can he still go to the temple in order to pray? Should he tell his family about his new faith? And how can he learn more about Jesus? He cannot read the few papers the stranger gave him, and there are no other Christians within a day's walk. Who knows when the stranger will come again? Can Papaya become a Christian after hearing the gospel only once? To this we can only say yes. To say that a person must be educated have an extensive extensive knowledge of the Bible, or live a near-perfect life would mean that the good news is only for an elite few in the world. But what essential change has taken place when Papaya responds to the gospel message? Now, this is a remarkable question and a remarkable article. And the reason why I start with this article and I read these things is because his observation to say that a person must be educated and have extensive knowledge of the Bible or live in your perfect life would mean that the good news is only for an elite few in the world. I mean, that is an incredible, incredible insight into some of the challenges that we evangelicals pose because we do. We actually um, have forgotten our history, our recent history that says that you know, that we need to know the Bible, we need to know God's word, and in order to have a relationship with Christ, we must immerse ourselves into God's words, etc. And the majority of Christians for over 1,500 years after Christ didn't even have a Bible. All they had was the church. All they had was uh, what their ministers were telling them and they were completely dependent upon that now imagine being in a culture where the bible hasn't even been translated and missionaries arrive and they preach the gospel and somehow a person responds and they're really not sure what they're responding to now i want us to take that back into our situation and the context when we talk about sexual identity Because very often the issues that we raise is we like to say that, well, a person cannot be gay and be a Christian. Well, that's not true. Um, A person um, who uh, is gay and a Christian and commits um, some kind of well, let's just say that, let's just be straight, right? They're gay, they're a Christian and they go have sex with somebody. Um, Are they suddenly such an abomination to God that they need to be cast out of the church? You see, there's a part of us, I think, that will say things like that. We will say to the person who just had sex with his um, same sex partner, right, to his gay partner, we'll kick them out. But the guy that is uh, masturbating to pornography, well, you know, we'll keep him in, right, because he has uh, an addiction where the other person is an abomination. That is the double standard that exists within uh, evangelicalism that really needs to be dealt with because it's a false dichotomy um, for us to sit there and to think about it, uh, and for us to—it's a false dichotomy for us to uh, talk like this and and espouse these things because it actually has nothing to do with Christian faith whatsoever. Now, um, this leads us to. Asking deeper questions that I think is very important. Getting back to this, his observation about papaya, he's asked the question what essential change has taken place when papaya responds to the gospel message? I want to suggest that the answer is he is now moving towards Christ. And this is what Paul Hybert was arguing. He was saying once a person becomes a Christian, their journey in sanctification is now moving towards Christ, all right? That is being center set. In other words, the center is Christ and knowing Christ. Is this, is papaya going to look like a 35-year-old stay-at-home mom in suburban America who attends a large evangelical church and probably um, homeschools their kids? Absolutely not, it's entirely two different people in entirely two distinct distinct cultures uh... with entirely two different backgrounds it, it you know that's the problem right the problem is is we homogenize people and then we we make judgments on who's in who's out that is a bounded set that is what we're talking about here so if we come back here for example uh... as this letter that i received earlier was talking about is is orientation sinful well the answer is no I received um, a letter um, from a mother who was really upset with me and she said that I said her eight-year-old boy who is um, I guess he's saying that he's gay um, that I said that he was sinful the answer is no I don't believe that at all orientation is not sinful um, and and that's the problem right because When we argue that orientation is sinful, then it would also mean that the good news is only for straight people because if a person is experiencing these orientations from early on and develops very early on in age. And despite what they try to do, they can't seem to change those things. Are we really saying that they are just out an abomination? Um, I think that that's part of the problem. And so how we look at this is instead of addressing, just not, instead of just addressing those issues, I think that we have to address a bigger issue. And that is the issue of hypocrisy. You know, Bill Henson talks about this in his posture shift workshop, um, which I've taken several times. And I love what he says here. If the majority will not repent, the minority will lack a viable path to follow. If the majority will not repent, the minority will lack a viable path to follow. What is the viable path? Well, the answer is repentance. What is repentance? Well, it's realignment. It's an ongoing alignment to Jesus. It's an ongoing pursuit of Jesus in being in relationship with Jesus and allowing Jesus to be the one who changes us. And we so often forget that because we think we're the ones that have to change people. So uh, this wait, what does this look like? Well, it looks like a parent being afraid to love their kids because they're afraid to affirm what they're doing. Oh, my goodness gracious. You're called to love your kids. <laughs> That's what you're called to do. That's what the Bible calls you to do, is to love your children. And I think that sometimes we, we sometimes forget that, number one, responsibility the great commandment to love the god and love your neighbor your children are your neighbor that is the first priority after loving god and they're not opposed to one another if you're loving god truthfully and following god following his word applying yourself then loving your neighbor is never going to be at odds with god because that's the second commandment sometimes we think oh no we need to insert truth and that's love that is not love. It's called being a jerk, particularly when we don't do it well. I um, I was on a flight home um, just recently, and uh, it was one of those flights where I was really tired, and I really just wanted to be left alone, And um, but the uh, the airline uh, steward uh, was a man. He was really talky, and he, he sits down right next to me. He starts chatting with me, so we started chatting back. And he ends up letting me know that he's a Christian. And he was was really a dogmatic Christian. And um, he started telling me about how he was really against homosexuality, how he didn't like it, he wasn't going to wear the rainbow flag, and how he told his boss who apparently um, is gay, how he didn't believe in that lifestyle. I mean, just just went on and on and on. It was like, oh, I was getting so uncomfortable. I mean, can you imagine? Here I am, the host of Grace Nation on the show of Grace on Fire. You know, I'm writing my doctorate in all of this and, and I just found myself just getting more and more uncomfortable. But as I listened to him, I knew that if I just challenged him on that, the guy was going to shut down. And so instead of doing that, what I did was... I begin to talk about himself and lo and behold, the guy's divorced, living with his girlfriend yada, yada, yada. And I was just thinking, are you kidding me? Are you absolutely kidding me? You're shacked up with your girlfriend, you're divorced and you have the, the audacity to sit here and call a gay person out. I was hot. I was really hot. And this actually leads me to a verse that I was thinking about this, uh, in the context of this show. You know, the major problem is our own hypocrisy, and this hypocrisy shows itself up in some of the strangest ways. Let me give you an example. I was listening to a theologian one time. I was actually interviewing a theologian on a different podcast uh, that I no longer uh, publish, and um, the reason why I don't do that is just because I didn't like the the trajectory that thing was going, so I stopped it very early but I was interviewing this theologian and he was talking about the issues that we were facing in the Anglican Communion uh, regarding human sexuality. And then specifically tied to homosexuality, he made this comment. And what he said was that Revelation 21.8 says that the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. The sexually immoral uh, will be put to the second death. Okay, now it's remarkable that he took sexual immoral... Applied it to the issues of human sexuality and particularly in terms of sexual identity and then he applied 21-8 because 21-8 doesn't even mention the issue specifically of homosexuality. It has the general issue of sexually immoral, which, by the way, is is probably going to refer to 98% of the population, i.e. straight people. Okay, 98% of the population Is going to be more guilty of dealing with this than 2% of the population and you say well what do you mean Jonathan and my answer is this is that if we just take all of humanity 98% of the people that are going to fall into the sexually immoral category are going to be straight because we're just simply more of us it's just simple numbers it's simple math and yet what we do in in church is we take on those verses and then we apply them to the minority And that's what I believe Bill is talking about here. If the majority will not repent, the minority will lack a viable path to follow. We need to start with our own repentance, but we don't do that. Instead, we just point fingers. And I'm telling you, friends, if you do that, you're going to lose the conversation over and over and over again because we must first address the hypocrisy that is in the church. And with this uh father who sent me this email again i love the fact that he's addressing this in his own family he went on to write in that um particular uh the body of email that you know he he was concerned about this and and i and i've in terms of church culture and i have to tell you that i think i'm concerned about church culture as well because there's a long way to go on these issues. Anyways, I've been going too long on this show and I want to get to the six, um, practical steps to apply to any conversion or conversion conversation. So hang on, let's take a quick break and then we'll be right back. Hey there, this is Jonathan again, and perhaps you've noticed I'm pretty passionate about declaring and demonstrating the liberating power of Jesus Christ to an exhausted world. And one of the ways that I do this is by working with parents and church leaders on how to better love LGBTQ people and families in the local church. You know, unfortunately, the church doesn't have the best track record when it comes to loving LGBT people well. And as a result, sometimes they can feel rejected or marginalized from those who they really need the most, their families and congregations. But I have good news. It doesn't have to be this way. We can change the status quo. God's word gives guidelines and principles that pave a way forward for a gospel-centered approach to loving LGBTQ plus people and families. You know, I believe the message of the Bible is clear. We are all equal at the foot of the cross. But let's face it, Sometimes conservative Christians struggle with how to live out this truth in everyday life. And as a result, there seems to be a lot of confusion on how to apply the gospel to our gay friends or family members. Well, to help meet this challenge, I've developed a program titled ReMission, cultivating side B allies in the church. In this program, I teach individuals or groups how to better love LGBTQ plus people and families in the church without compromising your beliefs and without further marginalizing gay people. You know, it won't answer all the questions, but it will give you the tools needed to love gay people well. If you are interested in learning more, then please visit MyGraceNation.com to contact me, and I would love the opportunity to chat. Again, that's MyGraceNation.com. And we're back here on part two. And let me just give you six practical steps to apply to any conversation with an LGBTQ plus person. And so, you know, the big question here is, well, how do we apply truth and grace to get love? And the one thing I want to say to you, right, this is this is not a formula, right? The formula is is really just truth plus grace, how we flesh that out. Well, that just takes time. It's an art and art is something as a skill right it's a skill that we have to learn and i use skill because we're not skilled we are awkward we say silly things we don't know there's we we've inherited too much from evangelical culture and uh, our church culture where we 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 just sound silly at times and so we have to learn on how to communicate with our children. We have to learn how to communicate with our friends. We have to learn how to communicate with those people who have been marginalized and alienated from the church. And so how do we do that? Well, the answer is, I think, is that we have to become excellent practitioners of grace. And so what does that look like? Well, number one, we have to start with the equal footing, right? We are all human beings. I, 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 One of the things that I want to criticize, if I could say anything, uh, for evangelicals is that we our language is being used against us you know for years we used language that was offensive to to gay people we we use the word homosexual, the homosexuals with the homosexuals and all that sort of stuff and now we're being referred to as straights. I don't refer to myself as a straight I'm a human being. I don't even think about it that way but I do know that um, gay people will do that and the reason why they do that is well because, well we've done that to them it's so important that we begin to realize we're all human beings on this planet god created human beings he didn't create straight people and gay people he didn't create all of these other types of people at the very beginning of the world he creates humans and the categories that we've created to you know, distinguish us, I think sometimes is a problem, and it begins to be a problem in terms of how we communicate with one another. One of the good things that are, or one of the practical ways we could look at this is you could look at the Tower of Babylon, um, or excuse me, the Tower of Babel. In that, that story of early Genesis, when God brings judgment down on the world, what does he do? He confuses the languages so that people could no longer communicate is it possible let me just say this is it possible that some of the challenges that we have in terms of our culture today is a direct result of god's judgment and by that i'm simply meaning that our failures to communicate clearly is all a result of things that happened eons ago I'm, not th- I'm just throwing that out there. I don't know that that's right or wrong. I think it's something that we have to consider. So number one, we have to begin on an equal footing. We're all human beings. We're all trying to understand one another. I think the second one here is to focus on the person and not the behavior. You know, this is a fact from, from psychology and psychiatry and, and counseling and coaching that behaviors rarely change, but emotions and thoughts can change. Behaviors rarely change, but emotions and thoughts can change. How we feel about a behavior can change and how our thoughts and what we're thinking about behaviors can change. And so sometimes when we start focusing on behaviors, whatever they may be, we can get distracted. Stop focusing on behaviors and focus on the entire person. The person that's sitting across the table from you the gay person that's sitting across from you or the straight person that's sitting across from you, if you're gay, they have thoughts, feelings, and behaviors just like you do. And sometimes what we do is we, we focus on what the person does and we, we fail to realize that there's thoughts and emotions and and a whole complex system there that is interacting and it may be Triggering, you know, uncomfortable thoughts in you, uncomfortable feelings, etc. But we have to remember that there's a human being there that God loves, an image of God that's sitting in front of you. Number three is practice grace space, recognizing the complexities that are involved. I love this idea of grace space. Um, it's just, it's just that. It's just space, giving a person space to be who they are in relationship with the Lord. We're, not, we're all on a different journey at all different places, and sometimes we think that we need to help someone along when, in fact, we might be the ones who need help along. So just give them some space. The The next thing that I want to say is, you know, we need to, well, number four, let me say it this way, we need to reinforce the relationship over and over again. How do you reinforce a relationship? You simply just tell them how you've been thinking about them and care about them over and over and over again. Why? Because we need to hear that. Well, we're all dealing with insecurities and and we're all dealing with with complex issues in our lives. So when I say that we need to reinforce a relationship over and over again, that's center set thinking, moving towards Jesus in relationship with him, recognizing that it ebbs and flows in our journey and becoming more and more like Christ. And it's nice to be with people that help us and reinforce that along the way. Number five, be grounded in who you are. Don't be offended if someone is offended. Well, I'm offended that you're offended. Well, I'm offended that you're offended that I'm offended. Well, I'm offended that you're offended that I'm offended that you're offended. On and on and on it goes. Just be grounded in who you are. Gospel centered thinking is always focused on the person moving towards a center. That means that you're moving towards the center. You are not the center. Jesus is the center. The gospel is the center. You're not the center. So be grounded in who you are. If you're trying to find, let me just say this. If you're trying to find your own self-worth by helping somebody else, you're in deep trouble, deep trouble right there. You're not going to be able to find any self-worth in trying to help someone else because you can't. It's only the Holy Spirit that can truly change a person. So be grounded in who you are, be grounded in the gospel, be grounded in, in, in terms of your journey in the gospel, and trust the Lord to do what the Lord does best. And that's number six, trusting the Holy Spirit for the long game. In the end, if you're focusing on relationships, remember that you're dealing with a human being, giving plenty of space in the relationship to ebb and to flow. Uh, reinforcing that relationship over and over again without being weird about it, by the way, and just simply being grounded in who you are, The long game is going to play itself out. And it just takes time. A long game is called a long game because it's long. And I think that that's one of the things that we sometimes forget when we are going through our, you know, daily lives. And so these are just six practical steps, I think, that are always helpful to reinforce the relationship uh, as we conclude this uh, series. Anyways, moving on, moving forward, thank you so much for listening to the show. And now, as always, receive this blessing. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and always. Amen. Thank you for listening to Grace on Fire, a Verb Creative Production. For show notes, links, and more, please visit mygracenation.com.